Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Brandon Ward. And I'm Ron Jorlock. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. I'm excited, Ron Jor. We are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Ronnie Kurtz. Dr. Kurtz serves as assistant professor of theology at Cedarville University. Before moving to Ohio, Dr. Kurtz was a pastor in Kansas City, Missouri for seven years, where he also taught theology at Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. He's authored several books, including the one we'll be discussing today, Fruitful Theology, How the Life of the Mind Leads to the Life of the Soul. Dr. Kurtz, thank you so much, brother. First off, for writing this book, I was able to get a copy of it before recording today's episode. And let me tell you, there weren't many pages that were left without pencil marks. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, and I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, ever since I started reading the book. So so thank you for writing the book, and thank you for taking some time to join Ranjur and I for today's conversation. Absolutely, Brennan. That's super kind of you, man. I really appreciate that word. That's encouraging to hear. Um, back at you. You guys are doing amazing work here. It's an honor uh, to join the the list of, of folks you guys have had on, and I, I think you're serving the church well with this podcast. And thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you. So why don't we get the conversation started off? For those that may be unaware of the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Why did you write it? Who's the main audience? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's it's no surprise to anyone who knows me that I love theology. I I didn't grow up in the church. I don't come from a Christian family. And when I was converted uh, a little bit later in life, I was handed a Bible that I had no idea how to use and had a whole lot of questions and not very many answers. And in God's kind providence, as I learned in the Christian life, for me, it became very clear there is a really strong correlation between my thought life and my affections for Jesus. Mm. And the more I thought about the Lord, the more I loved him. And the more I contemplated God, the more my affections were stirred for him. And so I I fell in love with theology early and really wanted others to kind of experience that kind of contemplative life, a kind of contemplative life that leads to joy. And to be totally frank, I've been a touch discouraged about what is passing in the name of theological conversation uh, today, whether it's online, the divisiveness that we see on social media, or even in person, uh, the last three to four years have seemed to be uniquely difficult in terms of division in local congregations that have been able to really assume a kind of unity. Uh, but the last few years, that unity has been tested for a number of reasons, theological, cultural, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when I look across the landscape of what's happening in theological conversations today, I see a lot of sarcasm and demeaning and honestly platform chasing Mm. and just kind of backbiting bullying and that just shouldn't be the case right and so what i wanted to do is you know i know i can't change the temperature of the conversation with a book but i just wanted to have a small shot in the dark you know to kind of give to kind of go the opposite direction to show 
Hey, theology should not lead to sarcasm and backbiting and complaining and division. Theology should lead to love and joy and peace and kindness. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to do was show how theology done well can actually lead to the kind of virtues that make up the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5 within our soul. So theology done well should make you be a gentle person, a kind person, a patient person person, a loving person. And theology done well should really form the person and form the soul in those directions. Mm. Yeah. That's really helpful. And one of the things that you do right off in the beginning is define theology. So so what is the goal of theology and, and how does it impact those who study it? Yeah, absolutely. So I define theology in line with a lot of uh, thinkers in church history. I'm not trying to be new here. Um, <laughs> often novelty in a 2,000-year-old faith isn't good. Uh, but uh, I, I define theology along with many others in the church as uh, the contemplation of God and all things in relation to God. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my the way I understand a theology. And that's important because if, if theology is the contemplation of God and all things in relation to God, we ought to grow to appreciate that which we contemplate. And if theology is the contemplation of God, I think we ought to uh, have a deeper growing love and adoration for God. So I I take, I've told people that if I could have one passage to kind of explain fruitful theology, it's 2 Corinthians 3.18. What I'm trying to do is simply behold God uh, and be formed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so really the goal of fruitful theology and even just more my theology in general is uh, behold Christ until you start to look like Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of the goal here. I love it. Well, almost to that end, you uh, really emphasize that theology is to uh, produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. So a fruit of the Spirit-less theological approach doesn't really live up to the standard of the scripture. So so how how did you come to see that? How did you come to see theology as as a sanctifying work uh that that produces this this fruit of the spirit? Yeah, that's a good question. This is kind of sad, but this is honestly how it happened. I in reading Galatians 5, Paul is con in the larger context of Galatians what's happening there it's easy to kind of isolate the fruit of the spirit, but the larger context of Galatians, what's happening in chapter five is Paul is contrasting the life in the spirit versus the life in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's going to manifest itself either in the fruit of the spirit or the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh that are listed in, in Galatians five, not all of them are necessary pertinent for our discussion here, but some of them are, I was reading it. And some of the works of the flesh are things like, outbursts of anger, selfishness, envy, uh, selfish ambitions. And I thought, oh man, that might be more of a real description of what's taking place under the name of theology today Mm. than some of the fruit of the spirit, Mm. gentleness, kindness, joy. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this is kind of a self-diagnosis question, a a self-diagnosing question does your theology look more like the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 hmm. or the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Wow. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized I wanted to do kind of a backwards theological virtue. What I mean by that is if you read like a theological virtues book, it might say, 
hey, when you do theology, make sure you are loving, make sure you are patient, make sure you are kind, etc. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is a little bit more in line of what your question is, saying that theology done well can actually make you loving mm-hmm. and kind and patient. Mm-hmm. And that's, to answer your question really directly, that's kind of a lifelong journey there. It's not a microwavable, hey, I spent 20 minutes thinking about God, and now I'm a touch kinder. Uh, It doesn't quite work like that. Mm -hmm. But as you are conformed into his image by beholding him, 2 Corinthians again, uh, you will start to look like him. And I've just learned that in my own life, the slow prod of faithful contemplation. uh, And in many men and women who have gone before me who are much better theologians uh, than I am. Yeah, that's one of the things you said was it's not microwavable. That was one of my favorite quotes towards the end of the book was that theology is not microwavable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish it was. I wish I could do, you know, 30, 30 minutes of work each day and become a really wise Christian. But part of uh, part of what the Lord does in Christian theology is he works in the wrestling and mm-hmm. that wrestling can't be sacrificed. Um there's a there's a reality to the fact that I will know much more about what I'm saying, even in this episode, when I'm 70 than I do now, mm. because part of the process is just that wrestling with the Lord. Right. Yeah. And, and, and going back to what you were saying about the cultivation of of the fruit of the spirit, I remember making this this, you know, discovery <laughs> uh, just recently. Actually, I was I was working my way in Ephesians and. And, you know, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And he says, why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And he goes on later on talking about, you know, to building building them up into mature manhood, to the full stature of, of the Son of God, or the, or the fullness of Christ. And then he says, so that they, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And it seems like in a lot of our circles, that's the end of the story. You know, why are they here? They're here to equip the saints and all that so that you are doctrinally sound people, that you're not duped by false doctrine. But that's not the end of the chain. Uh, uh, You know, Paul has a way of, of having incredibly long sentences and and that's like the halfway point of this sentence right. like, no 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 there's more there's more he's still he's still talking so he says rather verse 15 speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Mm. And the insight that I had was doctrine's not the end in this in this passage. Right. Doctrine is the means in this mm-hmm. passage. The means is doctrine. The end is love. That's right. And that was just a, a paradigm shift for me that we're spending you know good time, necessary time you know, forming doctrine, forming theology, making sure that we know the truth about who God is, about his world, about us, you know, about his church and and so forth, that we know what the scriptures say and we're able to articulate it in a true way, a truthful way. But the, but that's not an end in itself. The that's end right. is that it would cultivate in us the very love of Christ 
uh, as manifested in the way we serve each other and in the way we serve mm. the world. That was a massive insight. So thank you very much. Yeah, for, that, that, for emphasizing that's an that. important word. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. So so not only does it cultivate that fruit of the spirit, but you also talk about how thinking rightly about God leads us to a greater enjoyment of God. Uh, mm. why, don't you, why don't you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I love that. And I, I really do. I love that point you just made. That's such an important point. And there's so much more we could say there. But to, to answer this question, uh, thinking about God leading to enjoyment of God, I, I really believe this. And I I want people to catch this vision. I want people to catch the vision of God really is the greatest treasure and the greatest adventure of our lives. Mm-hmm. And theology is not the only tool to explore this treasure. Um, and in fact, if theology is the only tool you're using, uh, you might be leaving joy on the field. But theology is a good tool mm. to explore the joy that is our triune God. And so a few ways, I mean, that can happen in, in a number of ways, but a few that I write about in the book is uh, I want to kind of help recapture a vision of a focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful in mm-hmm. the Christian life. And I think in doing theology well, we really get an eyeful of the ultimate good, the ultimate truth, and the ultimate beauty. And so uh, I will half jokingly, half seriously refer to theology to my students as beauty hunting. And what I'm after there is, is I believe that God doesn't simply just have beauty, but he is beauty. Yeah. And if if theology is the contemplation of God, then what we're after is beauty. And when we are met with the ultimate good, the ultimate truth, the ultimate beauty, when our mind's eye really takes a long look at the true, the good, and the beautiful, it will lead to not just a joy, but a rooted joy mm-hmm. that's much stronger than a fickle understanding of happiness or something, you know, uh, a a lack of sorrow or something. It will lead to a rooted joy that has stability. Mm. And I think a a stable joy, a stable wisdom in today's world is about as countercultural of an idea as I can think of. I love in your book when you're you're talking about joy, this is one of the things that I underlined, you, you say joy is not negotiable in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And going down a little bit further, you say, given the important place of joy in the Christian life, it is vital that our joy not be equated with merely the absence of sorrow or the presence of a smile. Indeed, theology will not save you from sorrow. It does not have that power. Yet the good news is that Christian joy speaks a better word than a mere absence of sorrow. Joy is deeper than the lack of sadness, man. And that is just such a beautiful picture Mm -hmm. of the joy we get when we pursue and when we learn more about God. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, brother. That's that's exactly right. So you covered this a little bit in the book as well, and I wanted to make sure we actually asked this question. Should we approach the Bible with our theology in hand, or should we do so with kind of a blank slate approach, ready to be shaped and molded by what the Bible says? Yeah. Um, This is something I care about in my own academic field. Uh, I teach systematic theology. That's what I care about. That's what my PhD is in. And so it it, it tends to find a way to slip into all of my conversations, including this is a this is not an academic book. This is a trade level book uh, written for every every Christian. But it did slip in. Um, 
I, I, I would even rephrase the question of, of can you even approach the Bible without your theology in hand? And I would say emphatically, no, you cannot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is just simply impossible to come to the text as a quote unquote blank slate with no presuppositions, no cultural ideology. You just can't do it. Mm. And so I think what is a much more responsible approach to biblical hermeneutics and and the Christian reading of scripture is to read the Bible like a Christian and just own it, that we are Christians and we are coming to the text with a Christian theology in hand. And so I am reading the scriptures uh, daily and in my classes and what have you with Christian guardrails. I'm coming to the Christian, I'm coming to the scriptures with the presupposition that the Trinity is God, mm-hmm. that Jesus is eternal, that mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit really is the third person of the Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think to answer your question uh, very, very directly, no, you should not try to come to the scriptures as a blank slate. I think you should come to the scriptures as a redeemed, uh, regenerated, born-again believer, because hopefully you are. And I don't think you should hide that as you read uh, God's Word. Yeah. Yeah, you did a good job basically saying it really doesn't do you any good to erase all of that and come empty-headed without your theology. So you also satisfied the church historian in me throughout this book. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So my next question is, who all did you bring into the study with you as you wrote this? I noticed you you have some C.S. Lewis, some Augustine, some Paul, of course, as we've already talked about, and, and many others. So uh, who all did you bring in the book? And then kind of a second question, how have these theologians helped you not only write this, but just continue to be a faithful student and teacher mm. of theology? Wow. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, in my acknowledgments, actually— Um, I wrote most of this book in 2021, and during the summer of 2021, there were three authors I spent a lot of time reading. Uh, Those three authors are Augustine, Mm -hmm. Gregory of Nazianzus, and Fyodor Dostoevsky. Those are the three authors I spent a lot of time reading, and I thank them in the acknowledgments for reminding me. Augustine reminded me that theology is a pursuit Uh, worthy of joy, and it's a pursuit after God's glory. Gregory of Nazianzus reminded me that holiness is not an option for the theologian, that we must be sanctified people if we are to be a rightly thinking people. And uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky reminded me that that beauty is worth it. Mm -hmm. And so I read my favorite fiction all time is The Brothers Karamazov, which is Dostoevsky, and I reread that this summer while I was reading this book. And so that was that was there. And then any reader who knows me or is familiar with the writings of John Webster, he's kind of all over the book. And so I, I quote him the first line of the book. I also quote him the first line of the appendix. Um, so he's very much important in my thinking. And that's going to show up in the book. A few others, uh, I think I quote, I quote Jen Wilkin in the book. She, she has that great line that your mind can't love or your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. Right. And I love that line. Yes. Uh, I quote Aquinas in chapter one, Augustine in chapter one. And so those are a few of the names that, and then of course, Lewis made a pretty big impact. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of quotes with him, but one thing I don't want readers to miss actually is the last chapter of the book you write for those that might be new to theology and where they might need to start. And you actually include a list of several resources that are all really good from Calvin to Aquinas and, and others. So definitely don't miss that. Yeah, that was the editor there. That was their brilliance. They uh, 
after reading it, my editor, Taylor Combs, said, hey, what would you think about doing an appendix for someone who just said, okay, I agree with you. Theology is worth it. Now, yeah. how do I even start? Yeah, I love I was it. Like, how would I put that into an appendix? But uh, we tried, and I'm happy with the product. So there's, for any listener out there, there's a, a there's an appendix in the back of the book literally called, I'm new to theology, where should I start? Which is why I think it's actually a really good tool for pastors to use with their people that might be unfamiliar. First, like exactly what you said, this is why it's important. Now, here's how you actually take those first steps yeah. in, in doing this. Absolutely. Because theology is not just for pastors and church leaders. It's Amen. for all of us. So you write in your, uh, you write that, that our theology uh, ought to move us to be a, a people increasingly marked by love. So, you know, you think about what we've, we've mentioned even before, you know, love of God, love of neighbor, you know, and so on. I, let's just be honest, though. That's not usually what comes to mind when people think of theology or theologians, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so, so why is it that case? Why, why is it that, that theology tends, I mean, you know, I've seen it on seminary circles. Uh, I've seen it, you know, from my own experience as a seminary student. I see it now as a professor. There's that, there's always a group. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there, and we see it even more so, I think it's kind of magnified, almost caricatured uh, on social media these days. But, yeah. you, you know, that theology just seemingly doesn't drive us to love God and to love others, you know, is there is there something wrong in the way we're doing theology? Is there something wrong uh, with uh, with us? <laughs> uh, you know, what what's going on here? Why why is it that love is not usually the word that comes to mind when we think theology? Yeah, that is such a good and such a difficult question to answer. I asked a question in the book, basically affirming everything you just said, and ask what's wrong with theology today. And the answer is nothing. Theology is doing just fine. Uh, theology has been doing fine since the opening salvo of mankind. Mm -hmm. Now, what's wrong with those who take the title theologian and those who practice what is being you know called quote unquote Christian theology? Man, there's so much. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm amongst those who are disheartened by it and who just you know want to kind of put my foot down and say. What are we even doing here? Mm -hmm. like, what is going on in the name of theology today? And to answer your question, how did it get like this? It's not easy to, to, to answer that question. I think there are so many streams that flow into the, the, the ocean of misuse of theology. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not hard to find examples of theology being used to or being weaponized in terms of belittlement or theology being weaponized in terms of division or theology being weaponized in terms of kind of hoping for the applause of man. And I think a lot of it is that there is a deep tendency in us, a deep need to be seen, to be heard. And I think a lot of people who take the title Christian theologian really feel the need to be seen and to be heard. And Christian theology happens to be a really advantageous track for them to get some kind of eyes and ears their direction. Mm. Uh, and this is what's so heartbreaking is when you when you have a healthy vision of what theology can be and the kind of soul stirring it can it can provide for the Christian, 
to see it misused makes it all the more painful. Mm. Uh, there is a reason there's a conversation that's happening right now about church hurt and, and church trauma in the world. And it's because church hurt hurts. Yeah. And when you see what theology and what good Christian thinking could be, to see it weaponized is deeply wounding and deeply painful. Mm. And so honestly, Ron Jor, I don't have a good answer for your question. To be, to be totally frank, why some people seem to be inclined to pick up theology and use it to hurt is honestly beyond mm. me. Mm-hmm. I, I just do not understand the propensity to want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do such a good job kind of explaining what the setting looks like. Uh, just to read again from the book, you say the church is not safe from this growing disease of division. Uh, your news feeds and social feeds systematically offer you a steady diet of self-affirming articles that state this election or this theological disagreement is the one that will make or break the church. When stakes are constantly elevated to do or die levels, we can justify any tactic that gives our side an edge in the war of thought. Denominations, churches, and church members who once enjoyed deep unity are finding themselves growing apart. Those we used to march arm in arm with are now at arm's length, and we view those we're called to love with greater and greater suspicion. It seems that our culture has never been more eager to draw lines in the sand and never been slower to listen and love. As our tribalism grows, our ability to nuance diminishes, and it becomes increasingly difficult to pursue level-headed reasoning and Christian wisdom. Brother, that was just so, when I read that, I grieving said mm. yes. That is an accurate picture of what's going on. Mm. And so, yeah. kind of going into the next question, how do we live in this reality? How how should we treat those that we disagree with over theological matters? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, the answer is with love. <laughs> uh, I I sadly don't think that uh, the numerous commands to love your neighbor are made null by the the clause. Well, what if they're a bad theologian, or what if they disagree with my theology, or what if they disagree with my cultural inclinations? Uh, the the Christian way is is the way of love. And so I think I I didn't want to read too much into the ordering of the fruit of the spirit, but I do think there is a reason in which love is the first. I think Paul is right to say that we can summarize the the commandments by this love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I do think love is the greatest. And uh, the, the answer to how we treat those we disagree with is simply uh, the way of Christ. And that's Mm. with love. And so I don't think that means, by the way, to diminish differences or um, to make light of those doctrinal disagreements. Those are real, right? And we shouldn't just try to find lowest con- common denominator and, you know, everything's happy and, and rainbows. There are real differences and that's okay, uh, but that we still love even amongst the disagreements. And in fact, I, I even write in the, the I think it's the the peace chapter about how theology can make sure that the agreement and disagreement is actually substantial because we don't want to be the ones who it like, like those in the book of Jeremiah who are crying peace, peace when there is no peace, right? Right. Theology will help us actually make sure the peace is substantial. Mm -hmm. Um, And however, even when there is not peace, uh, 
And we have to say, hey, brother or sister, your worldview here is destructive. Mm -hmm. it, will, it will suck your joy. It will zap your kindness. It is full and riddled with lies. Even when we have to do those hard tasks, we do it with love, mm -hmm. right? There's a reason that Jesus puts together truth and love, and we just don't get the choice to separate them as Christian thinkers. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even as it becomes increasingly difficult to pursue Christian wisdom, we still do it, right? And uh, I'm learning more and more that uh, that means even in the social media space, even if it means that if there's somebody posting something, you know what, it might not be the best to kind of engage with them in this setting, uh, but to do so in a way that is productive. And social media that's tends right. to be on the side that's that's very unproductive. Yeah. So I, I have this question on here, and I don't want it to let it slip. It has slipped a little bit. Uh, going back to just doing theology, is theology something we do in isolation by ourselves, whether in our quiet time and our personal study, or is it something we do with others? And if it is something we do with others, what is the value of doing that in community? Yeah, I think, uh, of course, the answer should be a little bit of both. You should in your own time and in your own way, be contemplating the Lord, of course, you should definitely do that. However, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. The Christian life is rooted in community. We are a community of contemplators. And so, uh, you know, if theology is that eternal practice of looking at God, or if that's what we're going to do for all eternity, in the, in the beatific vision, we feast our eyes on God, and theology in the here and now is beholding him, uh, until we look like him, well, we're going to behold him together. And so I think it's really wise uh, for Christians and even commanded for Christians to think in a community. Just like sin can be damning, theology can be as well. Mm. And so you should think in the covenant context where you have brothers and sisters who are responsible for you, right. who will not let you die on the bank of the promised land, whether it be because of unrepentant sin or unrepentant he heresy. Uh, I think you should think in a covenantal context in which you can be held accountable by both creeds of the church and confessors in the church. I think those covenantal bounds of Christian contemplation are really important for a healthy, robust life. Hmm. That's good, brother. So any final words of encouragement you have for pastors, church leaders, anybody listening to this podcast this week? Yeah, I would say, you know, as a final word that um, the triune God is worth it. Mm. And a, a big vision of who God is and what he is doing in the world is worth it. Mm. Theology can't give you that by itself. It's not a sufficient ingredient, but I do think it's a necessary one. And if the triune God is worth it and getting a clearer picture of who he is and what he is doing is worth it, then I think it's worth it to pick up Christian theology. No matter who you are, no matter how much education you might have or not have, male, female, who, who, who cares? No matter who you are, pick up the tool of Christian theology and use it to get a grand view of who God is and what he's doing because he's worth it. Hmm. That's good, brother. Well, that'll do it for today's conversation. Dr. Kurtz, brother, thank you again for your willingness to join today's discussion and for writing this incredibly helpful resource. I encourage our listeners to add this book to your library, share it with your people. Uh, you will not regret doing so. 
And we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found today's episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give us. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors. And I hope we've done that today with our conversation. And as always, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.